Welcome to Bethany Bible Fellowship, where we are all about the glory of God and the good of His people. It is a privilege to be able to share this online resource with you, and we pray that it is a blessing to you, that it builds up your faith and encourages you on in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. So a number of years ago, there was what is probably arguably the greatest advertising campaign of all time, a small Spanish-speaking chihuahua (laughs) looks up at his owner and says, yo quiero, insert name of fast food Mexican restaurant. Now, I'm not a fan of small dogs, as many of you know, or cats, but uh, it quite possibly could be the greatest ad campaign of all time. And that is because it moved me from my desk to the car and down the road. And I found myself at the drive-through window ordering a Nacho Bel Grande, uh, which made my mouth water the entire drive back to church, back to the office, where I proceeded to savor every single bite. It's amazing, isn't it, how powerful the the desire can be for food. Oh my gosh, there have been times where it's been so strong in my life that it's like every molecule in my body is just clenching up with anticipation. And I feel like my hands are shaking and it's all I can think about is that very first bite of food. And you might be thinking, this guy's got some real problems and you'd probably be right. How could he possibly be craving this dreadful, this horrific junk food? But you know, one man's trash is another man's treasure. (laughs) The only problem was the treasure that I so desperately wanted that day actually turned out to be trash, and my body told me that not long after. Have you ever mistook trash for treasure? The Apostle Paul had. And he had wrote in Philippians 3 that all the things that he wanted, all the things that he had pursued in life and actually took hold of, he looked at them at one point and he said, this is all trash. This is all trash. He writes, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. He says, when he finally discovered what truly mattered, he considered all the things that he had treasured to be just rubbish. Have you ever had that experience? Of course you have. I've had it so many times in life, so many things that I look forward to, that I desired, that I, that I worked so hard for, that motivated my life, turned out to just be disappointing, or at the very least, unfulfilling, and I got them. I reached my goal. I conquered that mountain only to find out that the treasure that I had been hunting for it just wasn't treasure at all. And, and you know what? I thought the treasure hunt was finally over. I was taking it home. Or I had, I had signed the papers. The treasure hunt is over. No, the treasure hunt isn't over. It just continues now in a different direction and for a different thing. As we look this morning in Acts 19, 21 to 41, the word treasure, it's not mentioned here once. And yet as we weave in and out of each verse, we're going to see that uh, the bugle has been blown and the hounds have been let loose and the hunt is on and person after person after person is seeking something. They're motivated by something. They're driven by something. And we're going to have a bird's eye view. We're going to have the advantage of seeing 
what, what's actually treasure here and what's actually trash? But, you know, before we do so, I think it's worth asking, what are you seeking in life? What am I seeking in life? What, what are the things that motivate us to do the things that we do, to say the things that we say, to go the places that we go? Where will it all lead us, and is it going to be worth it in the end? Now, we've already been talking about Paul, so let's start with him. Verse 21, it says, now after these events, and we stop right there. What events are we talking about here? We're talking about the events that we spoke of last week. We're talking about those Jewish exorcists. Do you remember them? They're trying to use the name of Jesus. They're trying to use the name of Paul to somehow gain some sort of advantage to add it to their repertoire and to be able to drive out demons out of people. That was their business. They were trying to do that. And we, we talked about, we read about how when they attempted that, well, the demons weren't going to have any part of that, and the demons actually left those guys running naked and running for their lives. And we talked about the people who witnessed that and, and were just blown away and, and were trusting in Jesus, so much so that they were taking all of these books that they had invested gobs and gobs of money on, and they were, they were just burning them. This stuff is worthless. In fact, this stuff is just, it's evil. This isn't, this isn't good. Let's just get this out of our lives. And we read about how they were now desiring to hear from one book, God's word, more than anything else. So it's after those events. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. Now, if you have any knowledge of, of, of maps and geography, you might be tempted to think that Paul is in much need, desperate need of a compass here. Because if he wants to go to Jerusalem over there, why is he going over to Macedonia, Achaia, over here. It's the opposite direction. Paul, what are you thinking? Why would you be going there? But the thing is, as you read some of his letters, letters like Romans, and you go to chapter 15, and you read 1 Corinthians, and you go to chapter 16, you go to 2 Corinthians, and you go to chapters 8 and 9, you discover that the place he was going to go, Jerusalem, it was in great need. People there were desperately poor. And Paul was actually going out of his way to visit some of these other new churches that they might be able to pull together some money that he could now take to the church in Jerusalem, where this whole thing started, take it back to Jerusalem and care for these fellow Christians with their financial gifts. And I remember taking a class in college, and one of my profs was talking to us about some of Paul's letters and how they, you know, you could look at them as, as fundraising letters. And I went, well, that doesn't sound right. Fundraising? What are you, what are you talking about? You, you mean Paul is, is just going out there to get money? I mean, did, hasn't Paul realized that, that everything else is rubbish, everything else is trash compared to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord? He's not treasuring money. Well, what I didn't realize was he was raising funds. As he was raising funds, he was actually treasuring Jesus. He's treasuring Jesus and the people that Jesus gave his life for to meet the needs of these people. You know, they say that money is the root of all evil. Maybe you've heard that. You maybe, possibly have heard that. 
Some people will say, that's, that's in the Bible. They're actually mistaken. Because if you look at 1 Timothy 6.10, where they're getting this, it says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You see the difference, right? It's not that money is bad in and of itself. It's, it's what the heart does with that money. It, it's, it's whether or not it becomes what you, what you treasure. So many of these pirates out there, they, they, they sailed in their tall ships, and they went to those islands, and they got in the caves, and they opened up the chests, and they, they found all this sparkly stuff, and they were mistaken as to what the real treasure actually was. To look at money and say, here's the treasures, is to not get it. It's not what's most valuable. It's merely a tool, isn't it? It's, it's a tool. That's because it's never going to satisfy, and it's never going to be enough, and it's never going to leave you feeling completely secure, though we buy into this idea that if we get enough of it, we are going to be secure. We're mistaken. And that's probably because it, it just comes and, and goes. You, you can't hold on to this stuff. It burns in your pockets. And then you, you finally put it in a secure place. You think it's secure, and then you're afraid that somebody's going to take it away somehow. Or maybe it's never going to be found. Maybe you've buried it so carefully, so deeply, no one's ever going to find it. But because of what's going on in the world, maybe it just, the value just disappears. It just, and it's gone. Paul's treasure wasn't money. It was God's people. God and his people. And he was caring for them as he was trying to raise some funds to meet their needs. Can money be a means of worship? It certainly can. It can definitely be an object of worship, right? But it's also a means of worship. What you and I do with our money, it says a lot about what it is that we truly treasure. So, so there's Paul. That, that's where he is in the second half of Acts chapter 19. Verse 22 tells us that he sends two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, on ahead, and they're going to go help prepare these churches for Paul's upcoming arrival. Well, in the meantime, Paul lingers there in Ephesus. And you go, why, why, why are you staying there longer, Paul? You've been there for three years now. Well, he partly stays because of the opportunity that's there. And he's also staying, I think, because something's brewing there. See, he writes to the Corinthians while he's in Ephesus. I'll stay here in Ephesus, he writes in 1 Corinthians 16. I'll stay here in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective work has opened to me. And there are many adversaries. And that brings us to verse 23. About that time... There arose no little disturbance concerning the way. And you'll remember, perhaps, that the way is the way that Christians in the early, in, in the early days referred to themselves. They, they were followers of the way, the truth, and the life. So this is the way. This is, and that's pretty cool, actually. It says, about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together, 
with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear not that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Okay, first of all, we have to ask ourselves, was Paul successful in his efforts? Yes, he was. Here's a man who really doesn't like what Paul is doing, really doesn't like the things that Paul is saying, really doesn't like the outcome that he sees happening here, and he's admitting that people all over the place, they're buying into what Paul is dishing out, right? As we noticed time and time and time again in our study of Acts, God is doing amazing things around us. I was just reflecting with a, a missionary yesterday at the park. Just some of the hardships he's experiencing and the blockades over there amongst the Laotian people. They're so closed off. He spent six years laboring with them, helping them uh, develop a business there, a coffee business there. And he's, they're, they're, they're pouring their hearts out to these people, leading them constantly, pointing them to Jesus. And time and time again, block, 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 block. It's amazing how God works at different points throughout history. But here in Acts, it, it, God is opening up the doors. He wants his word to go out. And more and more people are coming to faith in Jesus. God is working here. And this, this, this Gentile guy, Demetrius, admits it. It's great. But at the same time, it's very upsetting. This is, this is not good. And that's first because... Uh, of what it's doing to the treasure that he was pursuing. What was Demetrius concerned most with? It becomes very, very clear. He's concerned about making a buck. Material wealth is where it's at for Demetrius. Demetrius was no dummy. And he had seen the signs. He had read the reports. He had done the market research. He had been following the trends. He could identify the factors that had been impacting consumer spending. And his conclusion was that people trusting in Jesus, that is not good for business. Uh, and if you think that peddling these trinkets that he was peddling, probably these little figurines, uh, silver and bronze of Artemis uh, sitting down, uh, if you think that was just a rinky-dink kind of business, I think you're probably mistaken. And that's because this town, Ephesus, is the epicenter for Artemis worship. And Artemis worship was not just localized to the city of Ephesus. This is across the empire. There were 33, at least 33 places to worship Artemis throughout the empire. But none of them compared to Ephesus. The temple in Ephesus was where it was. People made pilgrimages to this temple. This is the place you go. This is where people would go to worship. This is where people would go to get their Artemis paraphernalia. And this is what was once known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Ephesus had a claim to fame, and it was widely popular. Demetrius and his fellow tradesmen, they had a good thing going here. 
If you were a skilled craftsman able to craft little statuettes of this God that people could take with them and put in their homes and, and worship from the comfort of their own, that was a big deal. They weren't just getting by, they were prosperous. Was Demetrius a treasure hunter? You better believe he was. He treasured the living that he was making. He wasn't going to let anyone get in the way of that. But you know, he had other things he treasured as well, and, and that's revealed as he continues to speak. Verse 26, Demetrius continues, he says, And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into, into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. It's not just money. I mean, don't make any mistake. This is, this is all about money. It's totally about money. But it's also about our, our religious beliefs here, people. Don't you care about our religious beliefs? It's, it's about who we hold in highest esteem here in Ephesus. This is about what we value. It, it, there's shared cultural values here. And Paul, in the work that he's doing, well, it's attacking that. It's, it's hurting that. Essentially, Demetrius is appealing to what his people care deeply about. He's, Paul is leading them to trust in Jesus, which is leading them to de devalue and disregard what the Ephesians were most known for, for valuing. If you remember back to junior high, you might remember all those kids that started talking about your mom. Remember those? Your mom's so fat, blah, blah, blah. Your mom this, your mom that. It is all aimed at taking a jab at what you, you should care about, something very, very close to you. That's similar to what Demetrius is getting at here. Paul's making fun of our mom. Don't you care about your mom? I remember being in junior high, and my reaction to that was like, so what? I don't care about my mom. But in reality, there are certain things that we care about, right? Hopefully, our moms are one of them. We don't like people messing with them. Is it a person? Is it a possession? Is it a position? It's an icon. It's a principle. It's a flag. It's a political party. What is it that you care about so much you don't like people messing with? You know, it's important that we ask ourselves, is this what we should be treasuring? And to what degree? What do we treasure most? When it comes down to it, is the thing that we're treasuring really treasure at all? I, I ask my mom that all the time. Should I really treasure you? No, I don't do that. <laughs> the people in Ephesus certainly thought that their shared devotion to Artemis mattered. And we'll see more of that in a moment. They treasured what their culture valued. Third, they, the tre they, they, what Demetrius reveals... The third thing that they treasured was a shared identity. Verse 27b says this, and, and he goes on, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the whole world worship. Ultimately, this temple to Artemis, it, it equated to the people of Ephesus, their, their claim to fame. This is what we are all, this is what we're known for. This is what we're, all the tourists are here for. They're here for that temple. It's about their pride, isn't it? It's about our identity. It's about their shared source of identity that they're known throughout the world. Artemis was the glory of Ephesus, and Demetrius is essentially saying, Paul is stripping 
Ephesus of its glory. Stripping Artemis of her glory is stripping Ephesus of its glory. Are the things that you glory in. So when I was about 10 years old, my brother and I, my brothers and I went to stay the weekend with some relatives. And somewhere over the course of the weekend, a Nerf war broke out, and uh, darts were flying all over the place. And, and one dart, one fateful dart, managed to find its way to the picture hanging over the mantle of the fireplace, which was a large oil painting of John Wayne. And that's when we found out what that house gloried in. And we were fearful for our lives. What's it that, what is it that you glory in? <laughs> if you figure that out, you'll most likely find your identity closely attached to that thing. Now, it's possible, isn't it? It's possible to care for something, even take care of something, protect something without it becoming your greatest treasure, isn't it? It's, it's possible. It's po possible to value something, to cherish something, even love something without it becoming the main thing or the most important thing, right? It was Augustine who talked about that. He came to the conclusion that it wasn't necessarily uh, that we care about or love the wrong things. The problem is that we care about the things that we care about in the wrong order. There's a priority to which we should align the things that we care about or the things that we love. I can love my car. You can love your, 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 your pet, your cat, your, your dog. I, I may not understand it, but you can do that. But if we love those things more than we love, say, uh, our children or, or a spouse or parents or, or something else that really matters, then there's a problem, right? If our loves are placed in the right order, then that can be a really great thing. You know, enjoying some freedom and the ability to do what it is that you want to do can be a really nice thing. But if little Susie gets it in her mind that getting her way is far more important than listening to her parents, to her mom or to her dad, well, then that could be a real problem. Because if she treasured a good relationship with her parents, the ones who feed her and the ones who take care of her and protect her, give her every single good thing, well, then she could pretty much have it all. She's got everything she needs. But if she treasures her independence more, then she could cut herself off from her parents' good, gra her, their good graces, right? And isn't that pretty much the story of humanity? Us. And God. And the sad thing about what's going on here in Ephesus was that these people treasured something so greatly that they found themselves completely opposed to what was of superior value. Here, Paul is offering them a chance to be reunited with the greatest treasure known to mankind, the chance to be restored to, to good relationship with the God who had made them, who loves them, who, who has made a way for them to be forgiven for all of their offenses, to inherit eternal life with him in paradise. But they care so much more about the coins in their pockets and a lifeless statue that made them famous 
Paul wrote in Philippians 3.8, he said, Indeed, I count everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. For Paul, it was like, this is, this is, this is, the, this is the real treasure. This is what you go and you get rid of everything else and you savor this, you, you treasure this, you, 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 you collect everything you've got to purchase this. These people, on the other hand, are holding on to things that didn't compare. And they treasured temporal gain over superior eternal wealth. They, they treasure culturally shared values over superior value and collective pride over superior glory. And where did it get them? Where does it all lead them? Right in here. Fear. Isn't that right? Fear. That's what Demetrius is stirring up here. He's stirring up fear. He wanted his fellow craftsmen to join with him in fearing the threat that Paul in this gospel that he was preaching was to the things that they treasured most. And that fear was powerful, wasn't it? So powerful. The message Paul's presenting here, it was confronting people. It's confronting them with the error of their ways. It was an affront to their pride. It was a threat to their livelihood. It was breaking down the cultural unity that they had enjoyed as a, a people. It was separating them from each other. Verse 28 says, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. Of course, they're, they're going to the theater in Ephesus, and maybe you've seen pictures of it. It's still there. The theater was the biggest venue to gather. There were a lot of people. We need a big space. The theater seats about 25,000. Okay, let's go there. I wonder how Paul's traveling companions felt as they were dragged into this place and the crowd kept getting larger and the crowd kept getting louder. Verse 30 says, but when Paul wished to go in uh, among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. Even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Apparently, Paul had a reputation for charging into harm's way. Naturally, his disciples don't want him to, to get hurt. They don't want anything to happen to him. But these Asiarchs, on the other hand, that's why, why would they care about Paul? You know who these people were, of course, right? This is a common household name, Asiarch, right? These are high-ranking, prominent citizens. They are cult worshipers of Caesar. These are people all over the place. They're, they're selected. You guys are going to perpetuate the cult that Caesar is God. They're friends with Paul? This is incredible. This is one of the things that's going to end up leading to Paul's death that he's proclaiming another God other than Caesar. And these guys are, from, it's, they're apparently, they're still friends with him at this point. Look at verse 32. Now some cried out one thing, some another. For the assembly was in confusion. I love this. And most of them did not know why they had come together. That's <laughs> not unsurprising, isn't, isn't it? When, we, when we've seen riots, when we've seen mobs gather 
So often when people get riled, they just attract attention, and other people just want to join in. They don't know what this is about. They don't know what we're doing here, but we're burning cars. We're flipping them over. We're breaking windows. We're stealing stuff. It's great. Let's let out the frustration. Let's let out the aggression. I've got a lot to unload here. There were some people in the crowd who were motivated by self-preservation. There were Jews there in Ephesus. They wanted to make it very, very clear, you know, we're not, we're, we're not part of this. Not part of this. That we, we need you to know. Don't look at us. We're not, the one, we're not the problem here. Verse 33. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized he was a Jew for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. <laughs> two hours. I hope they had some water. So you have a situation that's just, it's spiraling, isn't it? It's just spiraling out of control. You got people who are angry, people who are totally confused, people who don't care really what's going on, and they're not interested in listening to any reason. Aristarchus, or Alexander, you're going to get up and speak. Nah, great as Artemis of the Ephesians, we don't want to hear what you have to say. They're caught up in the moment, mindlessly chanting. We know where that might go, right? It might, looting, maybe. Lynching, it's very possible. What about truth and justice? Is that going to come out of this? Well, those ships have already sailed, haven't they? This is a powder keg ready to explode. And the head of the city, the city clerk, yeah, he knew what was going on. He knew where this was headed. Verse 35. When the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus... Who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? It's very possible that there was a meteorite that fell around Ephesus, and that was part of their divine claim to fame there. He goes on, seeing that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you've brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. Or our, our goddess. What's the clerk's strategy here? Well, the first thing he wants to do is reassure the people. They don't have anything to fear. You don't need to be afraid of Paul. There's no real threat here. See, everyone knows that Ephesus has been chosen from above. It's the Artemis worshipers who are on the winning team. We're all on the winning. I mean, look at the legacy we have here. Look at the temple we have here. Look at the, this, is, this is Artemis land. You know, to put it the way people talk these days, he, he would have said something like, you know, we're on the right side of history here. He wants to reassure them. you got nothing to worry about. Secondly, he wants them to see you do have something to worry about. You have something much bigger to worry about. You're actually putting yourself, you're putting all of us in really hot water here, not with Paul's God, but with our God, our real God, Rome. He continues, if therefore Demetrius, the craftsman, and the craftsman with him have a complaint against anyone, well, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls, let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For if we rally, or if we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there's no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. Isn't it, isn't it interesting? Fear, again, is the motivator. It's fear. 
they had erupted into a people-dragging, chanting mob because they were afraid that they were going to have some things taken away from them. Now the clerk warns them, you got something greater to fear here. Fear of Rome finding out of your bad behavior, your disregard for justice, and they're going to bring a hammer. Reassurance and fear. Turns out it was the right recipe. Verse 41 says, when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. We want what we don't have, and we want to keep what we do have. And when anything stands in our way or threatens to take those things away from us, well, that's when we often discover what it is that we truly care about. When the Ephesians felt threatened here, it turned into an angry mob. What happens? What happens when the things that you and I care about or what we want are threatened? When they were assured that there's no real threat, then they quickly go back to their normal lives. They go right back to pursuing the things that they had treasured and treasuring the things that they pursued. You know, but, but Paul knew, and the disciples knew. And I think you and I know, if we know our Bibles well, that they were sadly mistaken. There is but one treasure to be treasured above all others, isn't there? And Jesus told a story about a wealthy landowner, and his ship came in. He has this bumper crop and you know, all this product protect, to protect his return, to protect his investment. Well, he builds these giant storehouses, and then he does probably what he was hoping to do his entire life. He finally leans back in that recliner with his hands folded behind his head and says, this is it. Finally, life on easy street. And that's treasure that's been sought by more than a few, isn't it? The good life. But for the man who thought that he had made it, Jesus goes on and says, God said to him, fool. This very night your soul will be required of you. And the things that you have prepared, well then whose, whose will they be? And Jesus concludes, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. In Mark 8, Jesus asked, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? Forfeit his soul. For what can a man give in return for his soul? The answer, of course, is Nothing. Take a lesson from the Ephesians here. Here they're assured that their prosperity-delivering goddess was, was just untouchable. Right? The clerk gets up and says, we don't have nothing to worry about. Look at this. From above Artemis worship here. Paul can do nothing. And yet one pastor points out today, Today, no one worships Artemis. Yet millions worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you one of them? What is it that you want? 
What is it that you're seeking? What is it that you're treasuring? What is it that you're holding on to with that fist-clenched determination? If it's anything other than Jesus, I'm sorry to say you've mistaken trash for treasure. Let's pray. Lord, we, we look to you. And Father, we, just, we have to admit here, and it is a humbling thing to do so, that we who have found our treasure in you, so many of us here have placed our faith in you. We have we turned away from other things. We, we, we confessed our sin. We knelt down before the cross of Christ and said, Jesus, you are what we need. We've been transformed. We've been ushered into this kingdom of light, and we have the promise of this inheritance that is incorruptible and unfading, can't be taken away. We know where we're going here, where, where gold, something as precious as gold, is just used to pave streets. Lord, this is, this is who we are, children of the king, adopted sons and daughters, princes and princesses. And yet, Lord, we so often are swayed to look for other treasure. We allow ourselves to be lured. We find ourselves failing to be satisfied in you and you alone. As we turn from one thing to the next to the next and find ourselves disappointed and disillusioned, Father, draw us back to yourself. Draw us back to the real treasure. Lord, may we be in awe of who you are. And increasingly, Lord, as the clock ticks on and the calendar days go by, may we look forward more than anything else the day when we step into glory with you and all that treasure is realized. Lord, may your people be strengthened, encouraged today. Lord, for those of us who are in the midst of bowing down and worshiping other things, Lord, convict our hearts. May we burn our books, those things that we're placing our hope in that are giving us the false hope that they'll, they'll bring about some type of secret to success or, or super health that no one else knows about or whatever it is, Lord. May we look to you. May we look to you alone, be in awe of you, glory in you. And now, Lord, as we close, may we worship you. And we pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Bethany Bible Fellowship. For more resources, visit our website at bbfoc.org.